Greetings from Cary Theological College, where I am professor of Old Testament. My name is Amy Chase, and I'm so grateful for this opportunity to join you in this year-long exercise of journeying with Jesus. Today, I'm going to focus on Psalm 2 and imaginatively explore how that psalm might have been useful to Jesus as he explained himself to his followers. I'd like to start by showing you a tweet that I came across on social media recently. You can see it next to me, wake up, check on Zelensky, have coffee. This really describes me ever since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I have been quite consumed with what is going on. People are saying that this is the first social media war. There have been media wars for over 100 years now where journalists will be embedded in a conflict and they will send back reports of what's going on. But right now you have the soldiers themselves on both sides and you have the victims who are recording on their phones what is happening in real time and beaming it around the world. I'm sure you have seen the images. I'm shocked. I was shocked when the invasion first happened. I've been shocked to hear about civilians being targeted indiscriminately. I was horrified to see mass graves, to hear about rapes happening. The latest I heard, people being forcibly deported to Russia. It's all very horrifying. And I'm finding the first verse of Psalm 2 to really perfectly encapsulate my feelings. When it says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers conspire together. This is a rhetorical question, meaning that it's not really a question at all but rather a protest and an expression of helplessness, I think we could say. Now, unfortunately, this graphic, up close and personal experience that we have gives us something in common with Jesus' followers on that road to Emmaus because the culture they lived in was very violent and it was dominated by an oppressor that they did not appreciate. And for the Jews, the Romans were just the latest in a long line of powerful nations trying to control them, dominate them, take over. So resisting the oppressor had become a part of their identity. So the death of Jesus and all surrounding that is experienced in that context and is being interpreted through that lens of their identity. Let me zero in in Luke 24 on one verse that is particularly interesting to me. 2021, our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death and they crucified him. But we were hoping he would be the one to set Israel free. So notice who Jesus' followers blame for this situation. It's not the Romans. 
It's their own chief priests and rulers. This seems to me very extra. Like it's bad enough that they're in their circumstances and it's bad enough that they've experienced this disappointment, but to know that their own leaders had a hand in it, that would be extra discouraging and really add to the feeling of helplessness when the ones who are supposed to be representing you and that you expect would understand what you're going through, they turn out not to be on your side at all. So I am going to consider how Psalm 2 might have been useful to Jesus in responding to this confusion. And I'm expecting that his teaching to them will be useful to us as we have to grapple with the violence of humanity and the suffering that comes about as a result. Let me read the entire Psalm right now. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I, myself, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Honor him lest he be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So to the disciples saying, our chief priests and rulers handed him over and they crucified him. I can imagine that verse two would be very useful to Jesus. Notice how it says, the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers conspire together. Is this the word together that I think is very signifying? We humans, when we're in the middle of a conflict, we tend to take sides. And the side that we are on becomes the good side. And the other side is the bad side. But Psalm 2 is really, after the first verse, presenting us with a cosmic perspective on what is going on saying that all the nations, no matter which one, joins together in saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Now, what might these chains and shackles of the Lord be? How about you shall not murder? Isn't that terribly inconvenient if you are a nation that wants to increase its power? How about you shall not covet? You shall not bear false witness. I can see any nation finding these to be 
inconvenient in purposes of expanding territory, power, and wealth. This point was recently made very well, I thought, by the actor and former governor of California, Arnold Schwarzenegger. You may have heard about this. He made a video directed to the people of Russia, trying to convince them not to be persuaded by the lies of their government. But the way he did it, I really respected because he took pains to point out that any nation is susceptible and actually does engage in corruption. So I can easily see Jesus appealing to Psalm 2 verse 2 to tell his friends that they shouldn't be surprised when their own leaders betrayed Jesus. Instead, I'm sure he taught them, put your trust in God. Now, Psalm 2 has many teachings about the nature of God. Let me focus on just two. Verse 4 says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. So the Lord laughs. This is a signal that God is not surprised or concerned or threatened or thrown by any of the things that happen here on earth. He's confident he has things under control, but he's not uninvolved either. He does act on earth to set things right. And the next few verses contain several statements of what God does. Look particularly at verses six and seven. I myself, I, it's emphasizing the subject as actor, have installed my king on Zion. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. The writers of the New Testament record the apostles making a direct connection between Jesus and this verse in Psalm 2. Acts 13 says, Paul is speaking, we tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. Surely the apostles got this teaching from Jesus himself as he was walking with them and being with them following his resurrection. It seems to me that Psalm 2, therefore, is one of the Old Testament scriptures that becomes transformed in light of Jesus. Traditionally, it was understood as a blessing spoken over Israel's king, whoever that might be, a reassurance that as long as he would lead the people and the people would obey Yahweh, that God would bless them and protect them so much that their enemies would become their footstool. This is a hope that kept Israel enduring throughout so many centuries of oppression and threat. So then in the first century, the followers of Jesus realized, wow, so this is how the Lord is going to redeem Israel through Jesus. 
as it said in Acts, by raising up Jesus, who is God's anointed son. Now, I have a question. So if Jesus has become the son to whom Yahweh speaks in Psalm 2, then what does it mean when in verse 8, Yahweh says, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Formerly, this was an image of domination. So is Jesus now become the dominator? Formerly, it's an image of conquering or vanquishing enemies. So will Jesus now become the conqueror? Yes, we have the New Testament scriptures that teach us at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But I don't think that the nations any longer will be his enemies. Not like the Israelites viewed their surrounding nations or the Jews of Jesus' day viewed Rome. Think about this metaphor of inheritance and possession. An inheritance is something you want. And of course, a possession is something you want to keep, you're going to take care of, you're going to preserve. So then what is the relationship between Jesus and the nations? It doesn't seem that he's going to reject them or cast them away from his presence. We do, in this psalm, have several images of what I might call crushing. For example, verse 9, you will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. But I would like to suggest that this might be the rebuke that leads to reform. Like a parent who needs to act and intervene when their children are misbehaving. I used to have one of those dads who actually would stop the car and pull over when me and my siblings were acting too rowdy in the back of the van. Now, we didn't wear seatbelts in those days, so looking back, I think his concern for safety was a little bit misaligned with the actual risk, but still I can understand him feeling the need to act, to intervene, if we got too rowdy in the backseat. And I think something like that is being described here in Psalm 2. And when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus, what I think frustrated him so much that, that they didn't yet understand is that the idea of God acting on behalf of Israel is just too small. It's not enough anymore. He has a bigger vision and intention. The other nations, even Rome, are all going to be his. Now, the road to Emmaus story does not specifically connect those dots. But in the next scene, it becomes much more explicit. So as you know, Jesus disappears. The disciples go talk to some other disciples. Jesus appears again. 
And look at what he says. This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So you see what I'm calling attention to. To all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. That is quite a shift in mindset. And it's a really big deal. Then we have the final verses 10 through 12, beginning with, therefore, you kings, be sensible. Be warned, judges of the earth. I see this as just a matter of fact saying to the nations, listen, this is going to happen one way or the other. Sooner or later, we can do it the easy way or the hard way. But Jesus is going to reign and all the nations will become his inheritance. So what should we do with this teaching of Jesus? If all the nations are going to become his inheritance, then I think you and I, we need to be careful when we choose sides in earthly conflicts. This doesn't mean I think we should be neutral and not take any sides at all. You can probably guess that I'm very invested in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. But when we do so, we should do so with the mindset that we have a higher authority, that it's Jesus who is our true king, our dictator, our prime minister or president, we could say, and our allegiance is to him and we act according to what his will is. As we pray and respond, we should measure nations and people according to whether they are submitting to or throwing off the righteous boundaries of behavior that God has set out. Then any nation can claim to be on God's side or that God is on their side. That's very easy and every nation pretty much does. But we need to evaluate what is their actual behavior according to the teachings of Jesus. I think we can take inspiration from the story of Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, which you're probably familiar with. Joshua 5 says, now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Isn't that a great picture of God consistent with Psalm 2 and the teachings of Jesus? That, that God isn't on any one side, but he has come. And how did Joshua respond? He fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? I think this is a good posture for us to adopt in the face of any conflict that's happening. Let's all regularly and sincerely, individually and corporately ask this question. What message does my Lord have for his servant? Let's ask it as the expression goes with the Bible in one hand and a newspaper or some other credible source of information about the world in the other hand, 
We are not helpless and no situation is hopeless. Psalm 2 ends, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Our God laughs. The nations are Jesus' inheritance. When we proclaim this and act upon it, we are journeying with Jesus. Amen.